Welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health. I'm Andrew Cavanaugh. And I'm Andrew Clayton. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Today, we're going to follow our three-part series. We are going to first talk about lasers, how they're used in the marketplace or avoided in the marketplace uh, relative to large claim protection. Second is interview our guest. Today, our guest is the heralded Billy Potter, CEO of Snellings Walter. Make sure we emphasize CEO. And third is we're going to uh, have a little fun with our segment called You Know Their Knucklehead When. And that's where we poke fun of uh, industry practices that don't make a whole lot of sense. So today, we'll talk a little bit about laser, that thing that scares everybody about self-insurance, sort of the Kaiser Sose of self-insurance, which is, oh, no, there might be a laser. So Clayton, in layman's terms, walk me through a laser if you would. A laser, short and sweet, is a donut hole in your risk protection. Um, And so as a self-insured employer, you buy stop-loss protection to cover claims above a certain threshold. That threshold is the employer's deductible, so the amount of risk they're going to take on, and we'll just keep that at $100,000. That $100,000 deductible is technically referred to as a specific deductible. And so what happens is the employer says, I'll take all responsibility for everything under 100, and then I want to buy insurance for an insurance company to pay all claims above 100. And what happens at renewal is that the stop-loss carrier has the ability to look at the population, their claims experience, and say, we're going to continue to cover everyone at $100,000, except for Andrew Cavanaugh. He is an absolute train wreck. The lobotomy didn't work. We're going to have to go in and do a second one, and we know he's going to have a half a million dollar claims this coming year. So we'll cover everyone at 100 except for Kavanaugh. We know it's going to be 500 grand or predict or expect it's going to be 500 grand. And so he's going to have an individual deductible of 500 grand. And so that $500,000 or the delta between the 100 normal deductible and the 500 is a laser. And laser really means individual or silo deductible based on an individual's projected risk or projected claims. And I think donut hole actually helps someone understand a little bit better than laser. But I guess the concept with the word laser is that we're lasering one person off the plan, like laser focused in your hypothetical. My brain is too, too much capacity for this world. And so we need a lobotomy to bring it back down to, to normal person level. And that's going to cost half a million. Your parents did a great job building your self-confidence. Yep. So let's, let's take the hypothetical lobotomy. We know it's going to cost 500 grand. We know when I'm going to have it. We know where I'm going to have it. Um, and that's really the argument for the laser, right? The stop loss carrier could sell the the employer coverage for me, but how much is the empl- how much is the stop loss carrier going to charge? They know I'm t- I'm going to be five hundred grand ground up. They're going to charge you um, an, an additional four hundred thousand dollars for the risk position between a hundred thousand and five hundred. Plus, they're going to add expenses on top of that, and they're also probably going to add a little bit of a buffer claims layer too, uh, which is if it runs over five hundred thousand. So the total delta for $500,000 of claims, they're going to probably charge you 500 to 550 all in. Right. And so that's why most employers opt for the laser, because if you get to that point, uh, the choice is have the higher deductible for me um, capped at 500000 um, or increase my premium by over 500000 And remember that I still have to pay that first hundred. And so it just sort of makes sense from the employer's perspective, also makes sense from the stop loss carrier's perspective. So, so it's what we would think of as rational at that point. Um, the, the way it's often described is that you can't really buy insurance for a building that's already on fire. Um, or if you can buy it, it's going to be the cost of the building plus probably the cost of cleaning up the fire. So that's the, the idea of a laser. This assumes that we got to the point 
where I don't have a policy that covers lasers. So talk me through that a little bit. Sure. So you can buy a no new laser policy uh, in the market. Um, they are not readily available, um, but they're they're available with certain carriers and certain consultant brokerage relationships with those carriers. And what that means is that oftentimes it's structured in a one-year renewable coverage where if Kavanaugh Industries um, becomes a client of Clayton stop-loss carrier, uh, for the first year, we will issue a no new laser policy, which means at renewal, you have the guarantee that we will um, keep everyone at the $100,000 threshold. Now, there's an extra premium that you pay for that, obviously, to avoid what we just walked through, the extra $500,000, $550,000 in premium charge. And the way that the stop-loss carrier um, pays, you have to pay an extra premium for that coverage. Uh, but they also say, we want to be able to adjust our rates up to a certain threshold, too, if we find ourselves that we have to insure a burning building. And so that comes with what is referred to as a rate cap because the employer wants to know that you're not going to just simply increase my premium by 550 grand. There's no point in having a no-new laser if it just means I'm paying it in fixed cost. Those rate caps oftentimes are in the 45 on the on the low end, uh, 45% uh, increase to premium, and we see them ranging up to 75 or 100%. Uh, sometimes people do throw the the ridiculous gimmick in. I'll give you no new laser, but we can change your premium to whatever we want, which is obviously the same or worse than just having a laser. So let's just put a numerical example there because you had a lot of words. And while I actually thought the words were accurate, sometimes it's easier to follow with numbers. So my stop loss premium is $250,000. And I say, okay, I want a no new laser policy with let's call it a 50% rate cap. So they might charge me an extra 10%. So my 250 is going to go to 275. I go through the year. And if I have that lobotomy claim that we were just joking about, they actually can't mm. give me that laser. Um, but what they could do is increase my premium by 50%. And so whatever half of 275 is would be my next year's premium. So uh, somebody without a lobotomy would have picked an easier number to, to half. But yes, go ahead. That's correct. So I have my new premium that's 275 times 1.5. See, I'm just going to speak in I'm going to speak in equations instead of rolling. 135, 137.5. But yeah, go for it. Now add that. It's bigger. Yeah, by fifty percent. Yes. So that's that's what I uh, opted to do. So I pay a little bit more. I buy more insurance. I eliminate the lasers. But as you said, um, at the second renewal, my third policy year with this carrier, they can take that away. And so for the lobotomy claim, it probably doesn't matter. But for something like a dialysis claim or hemophiliac that's ongoing. Um, that laser protection would be removed after the first renewal. Correct. You go from no new laser protection to no bueno, that you're out there and you can have donut hole not only on your lobotomy or your your dialysis or hemophiliac, but then the no new laser is pulled on everybody else in your population. And whatever burning or smoldering building you have is out there fully exposed. Great. So let's just summarize real quickly for the for the audience. A laser, a donut hole, normally tied to a specific person, hence the word laser, that reduces coverage. If you're at the point where you're choosing laser, no laser, it is often um, a good idea from both the, from both the employer and the stop-loss carrier's uh, standpoint uh, to apply the laser, but not always. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a future, uh, future segment. But the, one of the keys is that if you're worried about a laser or the exposure the laser creates, you can do things such as buying a no-new laser policy or joining a captive in certain cases to not ever be in that position, to avoid ever having to think about whether you want a laser or not. 
We are pleased to welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health today one of our favorite people in the industry, the one and only BP, Billy Potter, CEO of Snellings Walters. Billy, welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm going to start with one of our, our favorite questions, which is how you got into the industry. And I really want to know it from two perspectives. One is just how you got into insurance in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I actually wanted to, to, to focus a little bit more time on when you transitioned away from the carrier side into the consultant side. I found out that University of Georgia had a career fair. And I asked my friend for his ID because I didn't go to school there. And I, I went to the Georgia career fair, but found out which companies were going to be there. And I didn't really care what the industry was. I just wanted to see what kind of investment they were making into their new employees. And Sun Life Financial was at the top of the list. And candidly, when they found out uh, in the interview that I didn't go to school at Georgia, he had me call his regional vice president immediately, and they kind of put me on the fast track. And it was great. I, um, I had a wonderful career there for a decade. Um, in the end, it was more of a means to an end. I was, I was working there for the money and, you know, raising a family and having kids that wasn't fulfilling enough. In fact, it was keeping me from becoming the man I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew that on the, on the carrier side, you go one of like four ways. You, you leave the industry altogether. You stay a salesperson forever. Uh, you go into middle management, which I promise you that was not going to be my destiny. Uh, or you go, you know, you know, Clayton's a middle manager, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. As- yeah. Aspiring. Yep. He doesn't know. <clears throat> Or you become, uh, you, you flip to the brokerage side. I was attracted to that immediately and um, really just interviewed with a handful of firms in Atlanta in the end. I interviewed with a lot to begin with, but in the end, I was, I was only considering a couple. And walk us through that. I know you've told me the story before, but I love hearing the story. Um, why why uh, Snellings was, was the home for you, how you came to that realization, et cetera. Yeah. My last five or six years on the carrier side, I only worked with like five firms. Uh, digital insurance, J. Smith Lanier, uh, Alliant Insurance, and maybe one or two small other ones. Um, and really, most of my mo- most of my business came from Alliant and Digital. And so I was interviewing with Alliant, and then Snellings Walters. Uh, when I was invited to come interview with Snellings Walters, I really had no desire to to go to work there. I knew the family, um, and I thought very highly of the family. I went to school with. Uh, Tyler Snellings, who is the grandson of the founder. And it was a startup opportunity. I mean, they had no benefit shop really to speak of. Um, And when I was playing golf with the CFO of Alliant, he said, tell me where you're at, because it sounds like you're in between us and like a a family-owned insurance agency. I said, yeah, it's two completely different opportunities. You guys insure Macy's, and I think there'd be a an abundant amount of resources and, and, and a wealth of knowledge for me to, um, you know, learn from. And then this is more of a, an entrepreneurial opportunity. And what he said next was one of two big moments in giving me clarity. He said, I remember when Alliant was a small regional family owned insurance agency in California. And I was like, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to build something great. And then the second one uh, came in my third interview at Snelling's Walters. They said, how's your interviewing process going? I'm like, it's amazing. You know, these people are ready to give me a lot of stuff. And I just feel very desired, you know. First time, and, first time for everything, right? I've never felt that before <laughs> in my life. Um, and so uh, they said, what about with us? How's it going? I said, it's a little depressing. 
And uh, they're like, why would you say depressing? I said, because every time we're here, we're talking about my character defects and uh, long meetings. It was long and uh, a lot of Kleenex. (laughs) And uh, so they said, would you like to know why? And I said, I'd love to. And they said, well, if you can become this successful with your character defects, what we want to know is who you can become without them. I didn't really believe a lot of the things they were telling me about the company they wanted to build and the environment they wanted to create. But um, I'll tell you, it was a stark contrast with everybody else I interviewed with because their focus was on my development, not what I can give them, which let's be honest, dude, I was giving them debt. I had no book of business to bring. So yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Just so that people don't think the, uh, the wrong thing of you. When you talk about character defects, you don't really mean character defects in the way that most people do. Flat spots, weaknesses. Just, just give an example of, of, of one or two of the things that... Yeah, so my emotional response to circumstances. Clayton, you know what I'm talking about there? Just a little bit. Yep. Emotion, Andrew, are things we feel, Kev. <laughs> That's what we're talking about when we say the word emotion. Can you Love, draw that up? Is joy, there a picture? Sadness. Okay, mm. all of these are emotions. I've heard rumors of those. You can't always touch them, but you feel them on the inside. We talked about my shortcomings. Like what, what's keeping me from developing into a more successful man? Not a successful person, but more successful man. And the reason we spend a lot of time on that, and we still do today, uh, is not to make people feel bad about themselves. But you know, the issues I bring to my sales prospect are more than likely the same issues I bring to my family. If we can get people to be shaped into becoming better at work, everybody wins. Their family wins, our clients win, the prospects they meet win, their coworkers win. Um, and Truett Cathy said it best. Um, when Boston Market was, was taking some significant market share from Chick-fil-A, I think this was in the 90s, they had this huge board meeting and Truett Cathy slammed the table because everyone's talking about how they need to expand. And Truett Cathy said, if you make them better, bigger, is inevitable. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make people better. That's great. And this is why I work with both of you. There's ample opportunity to make you both <laughs> Huge upside. significantly <laughs> right. better. <laughs> Raw clay, right? I am your potter. There you go. So you guys are big fans of personality profiles before people join. It's one of the tools that you use to assess you know, the, 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 uh, the flat spots or maybe the blind spots a person might have. Um, because of you, we've started doing the same thing, not trying to turn this into an advertisement for Jason and Culture Index. There are other firms that do something similar. Uh, But just with that as sort of the backdrop, how do you use it? Where do you use it? What do you get out of it? How has it changed the hiring process? And then maybe more importantly, the firm itself. We could not be bigger fans of what they're doing uh, with that tool. And honestly, it's a great compliment to EOS, which is a big component of our organization, just identifying the right people and making sure that they're in the right seat, which I think a lot of productivity is lost in in our our workforce because people are misaligned. They're good people. They're just, they're, you know, not being aligned what they're being asked to do. And uh, from an interviewing perspective, that's the first step they take. I don't even want to talk to somebody unless they take the culture index. And to your point, Andrew, it's not necessarily a right or wrong profile. There are, are some profiles that are more aligned for sales. So all that's going to mean in the end is that you, you might not have to push them as much to go do their job. Uh, they'll intrinsically want to do it. And that's a good thing for everybody. Um, but what I 
want to look for with anybody that I'm interviewing is do they know who they are? And that's a great component of the culture index is self-identification of your strengths and your weaknesses. It's fascinating. We've used it um, for close to close to eight years, I think. So it has gone beyond just the workplace. We test clients. We test prospects. We test spouses, their children, uh, to help parents better communicate with their kids or their spouse, uh, to help us realize how we need to service our client. Uh, I'll give you a case in point. We have a fantastic client that's actually in the captive um, that my client manager came to me and said, I want to be removed from this account. And we're like, what? Why? They're like, this person hates me. And I'm like, that's impossible. She is like a heart with arms. There's no way she hates you. Um, and when, when we looked at her profile, she's like the 99th percentile sense of urgency in the world. She's been disappointed by everybody in her life by how long it takes them to get something. And so the perfectionist she was working with internalized the failure every time she asked, is this ready yet? And, you know, all that is, is a miscommunication. Uh, it's, it's, it's telling the client, you know, the reasonable expectation for this is 10 days. <laughs> um, and then boom, done. But we don't, we don't think about that kind of communication a lot. And so that tool, uh, there's not a, a component of our business that that tool hasn't positively impacted. I think to your point, there's an aha moment that's almost freeing when you analyze your profile, the folks around you, the mapping, the quilting, uh, how you fit together. Um, but we've been so conditioned to think that if you're in this seat or have this responsibility, you have to be cut from this exact mold and, and you know fit into, uh, as opposed to, these are the things that I'm really good at, I'm really passionate about. These are the things that naturally are gonna be a struggle for me. Why don't we just you know shed or reallocate some of these things uh, and let people flourish where they naturally want to be. We can and maybe should spend an entire podcast talking about EOS because um, there's so many great parts of it. And the people chapter is fantastic. Um, I remember that when we first did the accountability chart, um, it was a game changer because Clayton and I in particular um, had so many things that we both thought we were responsible for. And then a whole bunch of things that neither of us thought we were responsible for. And that just worked its way through the organization, which wasn't huge at the time. But everyone sort of pointing at each other saying, that's not my that's not my responsibility. And by assigning that, you know, huge difference uh, in productivity, fewer arguments between us, um, et cetera. And then you keep going to, you know, right person, right seat. Um, that analysis gets it, wants it, has the capacity to do it. There's so many, so many parts of just that section in the book. Again, Clayton used the word freeing, but sort of force multipliers on the business. You all upgraded with me when I heard uh, this is the first, and, and I know there's more, but this is the first core value that you identify, that you communicate to me, that you identified through that process about Pareto, where I was like, man, they did a great job. This is exactly what I see. This is exactly why I want to be affiliated with these gentlemen. Um, gentlemen's a stretch. Um, yeah, but use, use loosely. We got appreciate it. it. It's fire in the belly, and I said they ran a thorough process. That is a phenomenal core value for what they're building, and um, I just really felt like it'd be a good idea for our firm to hitch our wagon to you because you were running a process that's rare. Uh, you know that deep dive. It it takes a lot of time, money, and resources. And I mean, look what you've come in just ten years' time. It's just it's incredible. It's true. 
culture does eat strategy for breakfast. It, it really is true. Um, and all you have to do is look at fast food for that and, and see what Chick-fil-A has done compared to every other restaurant that has more means or more marketing uh, exposure or whatever. Um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And both of those components, EOS and Culture Index, are the best tools I've found in creating a, a healthy culture. Before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis for the listeners um, of who Clayton is uh, from a from a culture index standpoint? I'd love to hear your analysis of who he is. He's in a glass caged of emotion. <laughs> uh, he is the quintessential slayer of sales profiles. If memory serves me correctly, he's a rainmaker. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, rainmaker is absolutely the the best relational salesperson you'll find in the world. He has got crazy good emotional intelligence. He's a great read of others. Um, but that's because his, his B is so high, he's constantly reading his audience and saying, how much do they love me? Um, <laughs> not, not enough, typically. <laughs> more, more. And, um, and he's low logic, just like me. He feels first, second, third, and then he thinks. Uh, and it's usually a blackout. So for me, you know, when I'm, when emotions are high, intelligent decision-making is low. And, um, unfortunately time cures that it just takes a long time, uh, to realize that we can't respond or react to certain circumstances the way that we want to, because we feel so strongly about them. Uh, one thing that's unique about Clayton is that when you share an experience with him, he hears what you're saying. But he can identify what he felt when he experienced the same circumstance in his life. And because of that ability, he has the, uh, this uncanny way of establishing trust really quickly with others because he can connect how the two feel without it really being shared, uh, which is kind of amazing that you guys are so t close because, Cav, you're incapable of communicating emotion and you don't have to. <laughs> Because Clayton say, has it for you. I, I trust that part of that trust is I trust you to now walk through Kavanaugh's profile. Yeah. So, um, so we're running, we're running out of time yeah. on that. So, well, well, all right, fine. Then I, I just have, I have two films that we could watch to understand the both of you. Clayton's Captain Kirk and Kavanaugh's Spock or Clayton's Han Solo and you are C-3PO, Cav. Um, <laughs> there's a guy in my office that is similar to your profile, Cav, and uh, he said something very complimentary to our board on a text message chain, and somebody on the board hearted what he said, and his response back was, no hearts, please. <laughs> the only thing, the only thing that I regret about this conversation, or the main thing I regret, is that Clayton's is wife isn't on here for this. Is the truth right? No, it's listening. I would like to have Michelle on here so she could hear you describe her husband because I think she might, you know, point point of order here. You said we ask spouse or encourage spouse to do the culture index. We do too, but we've made the mistake of doing it at uh, cocktail parties. Um, mm. You know, later in the evening. Not always the best uh, moment or moment in time. I cannot tell you how many accolades we've gotten from spouses with their appreciation. I mean, one of them said, I wish we found you four years ago. And I was like, <laughs> why? They said, you would have saved us about 15 grand in, uh, 
you know, psychology bills. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so when my, my wife and I fight um, and somebody drops the ball on something, she will immediately go to, that's your low attention to detail. Just ask Kavanaugh. <laughs> well, here's, here's what I would say. She's, not, she's actually incorrect with saying that. It's not that you have a low attention to detail. It's that I just you don't have care. no attention to detail. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like Cav does. So, uh, you know. <laughs> you spent a decade um, calling on brokers. And as you said, when you moved to the Snellings, they made an investment in you. Uh, you came without a, a book of business. But you got to see what a bunch of, I'm sure, quality folks were doing. Uh, what were some of the things that you said, you know, I want to emulate that, that's, that's, I'm going to operate and, and I want to be the professional that you are today. So Bob Reynolds, uh, he, he may have retired by now, but he was the 11th employee at McGriff, Siebel's and Williams. So this is before BB&T came in with McGriff's world and, and uh, he's just a class act, man. I'll never forget him sharing with me that he sold a 60% increase on, uh, on a disability, on a long-term disability policy. The, the premium on the account was $10 million. So he sold the $6 million increase to the client. And when he explained why, he walked the client through uh, why this is a good deal for the organization and what are the long-term effects with shopping this business because it was very credible, right? So he wasn't intimidated by the price he was focused on the conversation. That kind of thoroughness bridges the gaps of miscommunication. And he was, he was depending on the day, I mean, he would be a, a, a staunch uh, advocate for the client. And then he'd also be a staunch advocate for the insurance companies that he's representing. Bob Reynolds made you feel like a partner. Um, he'd buy me lunch when I would come and visit him in Birmingham, Alabama. And, um, I just thought, you know what, the kind of relationships he has with his clients, there's a stark contrast with what he's doing and then what 80% of the brokers I call on are doing. Love hearing that story. So that's a great example of something that you see in the marketplace from your peers um, that, that you want to emulate. Mm. And on this podcast, we're doing a segment each time, which is, you know, they're a knucklehead when. Mm. Um, so we would love, would love a nugget or two from BP. How do you know when someone out there is a knucklehead? We don't have to use names, yeah. Um, but just, uh, just curious. You can use it, names if you want. Don't let it, us hold you back. I almost don't believe it when a prospect tells us that their current agent tells them that they're too small to sell fund. Like I, I almost don't believe that exists. I'm like they're making that up. There's no way. So th that is a surefire way, um, in my opinion of being a knucklehead is making a gross assumption based on the size of the organization that you can or can't sell fund. I think the knuckleheads have one real issue and that's telling rather than asking because it's mostly relational. It's, it's not asking questions that are having them think critically about their business and about their part in the issue that needs to be addressed in the company favorite question that you like to start with or ask just sort of open-ended to get a dialogue going that you're willing to share again sure in theory someone might be listening to this and ask the same question not that it's going to matter but one of my most favorite questions to ask is uh we'll pretend that clayton's the incumbent the the prospect was telling us we've been disappointed you know last three years we've asked for this they've ignored it blah 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 and so we're ready to make a move 
And I just love asking if, if Clayton were here right now, would he know that you're ready to make a move? Have you communicated that to him? And a lot of times they're like, what? And a lot of the times you'll hear a lot of key words that tell you, no, he's, he doesn't know. <laughs> like, well, he should, or I think he should, or I believe so. Uh, well, we've, we've clearly communicated in the past. And so, you know, bluntly, I say it, it doesn't necessarily sound like you have great confidence that Clayton knows. And based on the relationship you've had with him, I, I think it's fair for him to know. Wouldn't you agree? And uh, the reason we do that is twofold. Honestly, we want to push him back to the incumbent. Can you salvage the relationship? Because if you can, I think everybody wins. Uh, that's first and foremost why we do it. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Because I'm going to disappoint this guy someday. I know I will. And, and that's okay. It's just not okay for me to not know about it. That's what's not okay. Um, and now the agent's fault is not asking enough questions. And then the second component of that is I want to know in that moment, am I inheriting this issue where they're poor communicators when they're wronged? Uh, that's why I want to know that. I'll tell you, um, it's uncomfortable. And I don't mind entering the quote unquote danger, but it's uncomfortable for me to ask. I'll never forget. There's a client that I asked one day, hey, where have I failed you? Where have I let you down? How could I be better? You know, my, my agency success depends on your feedback right now. She handed me nine pages of notes. <laughs> I was rocked so thorough about all the missteps over, dude, it's been like eight months that we were together. <laughs> and it rocked my we can world. Ed, we can edit this part out. <laughs> yeah. And um, she is, she put a bronze statue of us in her company today. We heard her and we responded to the feedback. And, and that's the thing about relationships is that uh, the healthier the relationship, the more healthy conflict you'll have. And that's the true sign of a true relationship is that they're not afraid to share. You have broccoli in your teeth, dude. Get it out. As you think about the industry, um, what's the one thing that keeps you up at night? Uh, the consolidation bothers me. Not, not so much on the insurance agent side, but it continues to happen with the networks. It's just becoming more monopolistic. And I don't like that. The networks are controlling a lot of our ability to self-fund. They're almost trying to make self-funding more of a fully insured product. Uh, does that make sense? Sure. Uh, more yeah. controlled. I think the autonomy of putting the, the decision in the employer's hands to make their own decisions is part of the beauty of self-funding. Um, it's kind of like saying the difference between building a home and then choosing between one of three homes that you can ask your builder to make, you know, it's just not the same. Fewer checks and balances. Let's take the flip side of that. What's, uh, you know, one thing you're really excited about, uh, over the next five, over the next five years, or one thing you think the industry is going to graduate to, that's going to be a, a really positive change. You know, not to toot your own horns, but um, y'all have broke the mold on what's been needed badly uh, in this small to mid market, depending on how you define it, space for health insurance. I just hope that the caliber of consultant that represents your product can keep pace. Unlikely they're keeping pace with you, BP. Um, you, you are an outlier, and I truly mean that. 
Um, I remember the time that I met you in person for the first time, came to your office, and uh, and it was a unique un- unique meeting for me. A, I was out trying to sell, and we know that's not always a good idea. Um, and B, I think you gave me five books to read. Um, but I think the thing that I walked away from there, and I know you and I have spoken about this, thinking uh, where we are kindred spirits, even if our personality profiles are so different, is that we weren't interested in talking about two or three accounts. We want to talk about 100 accounts. It's just been such a phenomenal investment for our firm. So I'm, I'm grateful for, for both of you for what you've done. I'm getting uh, verklempt here. I might have a, I might have a Those tear. Are no. Those are emotions. Those are emotions. Is that is? Don't okay. We don't want, we don't want CP, C3PO to get rusty. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy, you're at a cocktail party. Someone walks up to you and says, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I have four children that I'm raising. That's the first thing that I say. Many times I don't even say that I'm in an insurance. I just talk about the fulfillment I have in my work. What I like about that is to see where the conversation's going. Like, do they, do they actually want to know why I do what I do or do they just want to know what I do so they can move on? If the conversation's just kind of flat, I, I tell them I, I own an insurance agency and then we move on. But if the conversation's something more, I, um, I tell them that I work for a firm uh, what it's done for me and helping me become the man I've always meant to be. And now for the last segment of our episode before, because this is the place where Clayton or I, but typically Clayton, put our foot in our mouth. So get ready for, you know they're a knucklehead when. So this week's one, really straightforward. I saw someone write something in one of the, uh, and sort of, I think it's a LinkedIn post, because that's about the only social media I read uh, or that will have me. And it said, it is always a good idea for the employer to take the laser. And so I'm just going to tell you, we'll explain why in a second, but if someone tells you it is always a good idea to take lasers, they're a knucklehead. Clayton, tell me why that is. That is basically the same thing as saying, I will always take all uncapped liability and risk now and in the future. And from a from a risk perspective, you look at it and say, okay, if it's something really small, quantifiable, and you know that it's going to be a likely predictable outcome from a risk perspective or from a healthcare perspective, a cost basis, then it probably does make sense because you're simply just overpaying in expenses as opposed to paying that claim direct. But for something that has a, a lot of volatility, potential exposure, could have complications, uh, could have a multi-year uh, cost basis to it, it is in all likelihood better to be able to transfer that risk to somebody else. Uh, that's why the insurance companies have the big balance sheets. That's why uh, health plans don't have the big balance sheets, that you don't want that ongoing year-to-year risk and volatility. Let's use an example. Uh, and this is sort of real world. We see this all the time in our business, where XYZ Manufacturing has an employee um, whose condition suggests that he or she might need an organ transplant at some point. And so organ transplant, let's just use round numbers. Let's pretend it's $500,000 if you have it. And so the stop loss carrier says, okay, XYZ manufacturer, um, you didn't show up with a no new laser policy. So I get to use these things called lasers. Um, we have person A that's showing that they might need um, an organ transplant sometime in the future. And it might cost 500 grand. So I'm going to put a 500, maybe even a $600,000 laser on the policy. Right. That's the way the insurance industry thinks, because if you're setting the laser, you're setting it at the maximum cost or the likely maximum cost for that procedure. But here's here's why the original statement is a knucklehead statement is that that assumes that they will have 
um, the organ transplant, that there's a 100% chance they're going to have that. And organ transplant's a great example where it might happen this year and it might happen five years from now. And so if you said, okay, what's the probability of an organ transplant? And let's just call that one in five um, or 20%. And if we do have it, it is um, $500,000. Well, that means the expected value of that organ transplant next year is $100,000. And so if you went to the carrier and said, look, I'll pay you 120 grand in premium and get rid of the laser. Um, the carrier might take that all day long. They're going to make a little bit of money. They're in the business of taking risk. And as the employer, I've taken away the potential of getting kicked in the teeth with that $500,000 in one year. Over five years, would it cost me a tiny bit more? Yep. But I'd have less volatility. I'd have more certainty. And you know what? That's what insurance is. Clayton, a couple more that I heard uh, on the same string. Um, lasers are almost always set too high. Give me your thoughts on that. No, is a, a short version of it. As you, as you walked through before, lasers are often set at what the likely expected outcome is going to be. Maybe there's a small hedge or, or buffer in there, but there can be compounding factors. There could be uh, other issues that occur within an individual. You could have a, a hemophiliac that's lasered at a million dollars or 750, and it ends up being an extended hospital stay with you know ongoing tremendous, uh, tremendously costly treatments, and it's two and a half, three million dollars. Obviously, in that scenario, the laser, you know, the the coverage above the laser picked up an, an extra two million dollars of claims. So there certainly are scenarios where the laser was set at what was believed to be an appropriate amount, but just like anything in life, things can happen uh, and the costs well exceed the the laser threshold. Yeah, so I think we would agree that that carriers tend to be conservative in how they set them because it's heads I lose, tails I tie, right? They're not making any premium for it. And so we wouldn't argue with that. But at the same time, the higher the laser, the less competitive their quote. Um, and so carriers are not just sort of arbitrarily setting ridiculous amounts. And there's a lot of science, including artificial intelligence and machine learning going into uh, these things these days to try to come up with the right amount. So uh, the idea that they're sort of, um, you know, arbitrarily, um, or maybe intentionally, you know, twice what they should be. I, I just don't buy it. Um, and then the last one that was part of the same string, which really made me chuckle. Uh, the comment was that um, not only should you take the laser for the reason we talked about earlier, uh, but it's actually better for the employer's financials. Uh, because with the laser, you don't have to pay any money and you're not required to post a reserve. And so your financial statements, your income statement and your balance sheet will look better. And I just, you know, that that's a knucklehead uh, definition right there because, at the end of the day, you're either paying the insurance premium or you're paying the claim. And the fact that your financials don't reflect it for some amount of time, even though it's still either going to happen or not happen, isn't a good thing. And I to defy you to find a CFO or a, an owner of a company that wants to inflate their financials essentially inaccurately for some short amount of time for a claim that's about to hit. And in fact, it's the opposite, that they would want to expense it as soon as possible. Uh, a, reduces taxable income, and B, most people want their financial statements to be conservative uh, as opposed to aggressive. So Clayton, I know you're trying to interrupt me there, but go ahead. No, I would just add to that. You're, you're exactly right. The additional factor I would comment is that they're doing all of that. They're trying to fool around with their financials to make them look better for a very limited period of time while increasing their exposure tremendously. So the, the trade-off isn't worth it short time, and it's certainly not worth it in the long run because uh, they could be faced lasers that are going to have a much more material impact on financial statements. So lasers, again, we're not saying they're good or bad. They have their place. What we're telling you, though, is if someone tells you they, you should always take a laser, 
they're a knucklehead. If someone's telling you that a laser is better for their financial statements, they're a knucklehead. And then the last thing is that the person that you're talking to might be a knucklehead if you're having a conversation about lasers to begin with, because there are no laser policies, some for a year, some in perpetuity, and things like benefit captives. And so it's possible that the person is such a knucklehead that they didn't put you in the position to not have to consider whether or not you want a laser. They didn't give you the opportunity uh, just to take those completely off the table. And therefore, you're now making decisions around what level of extreme volatility you want, uh, as opposed to having you know, bought the right product from the start uh, and not be faced with that decision. Thanks for listening to today's episode of 8020 with Pareto Health. We love hearing from you. If you have a question or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at 8020 at That's 8020 at Dive deeper into 8020 by visiting us at paredohealth.com slash podcast. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode.